and we were, I was about five minutes away from an In-N-Out burger. Now, we all want In-N-Out on, on the island, don't we? Do we all wonder why there is not an In-N-Out burger on the island? And Well, so if you're five minutes away from an In-N-Out burger, you got to go. And if you've never been to one, they're pretty, pretty good. And so I'm there, and I'm, you know, kind of a little jokey and uh, with the, the guy behind the counter. And all of them seem to be about 18-year-old high school kids. And, and the vibe of this In-N-Out burger was amazing. It was energetic. It was happy. They all seemed to have sort of smiles on their faces. I, I've not always seen this at a burger place, okay? And there was just this sense, this vibe of fun and uh, almost excitement uh, to work at this In-N-Out burger. Um, so the whole place kind of picked up this vibe. I want to talk about the grace vibe. We sense things. We pick up vibes. We, it's a perceptible sort of, tan, almost a tangible quality. Um, we can sense people's sadness. We can sense their happiness. Uh, we can sense someone's communication. It's a, it's a nonverbal something. can be a verbal thing but also can be sensing someone's superiority. Uh, you can sense someone's privileged status or how they view themselves. You can sense someone's judgment. Um, you can sense that you're not important. You can sense that you're not loved. Actually, this vibe thing is pretty significant. Um, and so I want to talk about this vibe thing. In Reformed and Presbyterian circles, um, this is not really that. It's not a theological category we talk about. Um, I don't think it's in a systematic theology, doctrine of scripture, doctrine of sin, the doctrine of vibe. I don't think it's there. I don't think, I think so. I'll double check. So uh, why don't we talk about it? It's interesting, isn't it? We love truth, by the way. We love truth. Or so we say. Um, sometimes we're very harsh with truth, if you don't know this. We're very exact in our understanding. We love theological precision. And uh, all of that can actually come off in a very off-putting vibe. Tim Keller says, if you really love the truth, you'd care for it better. You would care for it with more love, you would think about how to best deliver it. You'd, you'd think about how best to make the truth uh, transferable, uh, receivable by the other person. You wouldn't just hammer them with the truth. What is the shape of truth? How does it express itself? So that's kind of the sense. Uh, that gives you a vibe of the grace vibe. What is this? We're going to explore it. And uh, it feels a bit intangible at first, but I hope it becomes very palpable and understandable. So let's pray. Let's ask God to, to bless this time. Father, I pray that uh, we would sense what it is um, this particular text is saying to us. And we would pick up what it means for us as we interact with people 
Lord, thank you that you are masterful in how you apply the scriptures to us. You take this limited, very, uh, un, uh, this person who speaks, unable uh, to communicate anything of true transforming power, and you take this, this time and you use it for your purposes. So we, we love you for that, and we give you our ears, and we give you our hearts that we could hear. Speak, O Lord, and we will give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I want to give you permission up front uh, to think ahead of me. Uh, because what I want you to do is I want you to, I'm going to be talking about Romans uh, 1, 2, and 3 in sort of a big picture thing. But I want you to be able to go ahead of me and uh, I want you to begin to think what kind of vibe would come out or would be produced in a person who truly heard this stuff. What kind of vibe? You begin to apply it. You begin to think about it. And uh, if you can put this in your own relational terms, uh, I will have considered this to be a successful uh, moment with you. So what kind of personal vibe would a person communicate if they understood deep down what these ideas from Romans are teaching. So uh, the title of today, uh, sort of the core, the core humility, uh, gives away the subject. Our subject today is humility. And to get there, to get to this humble place, um, we have to talk about what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. He, he really begin, he, he talks about the, the, the dire situation that human beings are in, from Romans 1, 18 to Romans 3, 20. And in that expanse, those chapters, he begins to dismantle people's righteousness. <laughs> and uh, the first chapter is rather sort of obvious. It's sort of like, wow, these are pagan unbelievers. Uh, these are sort of wild people morally the irreligious, oh yeah, we, we can see that they don't have any, any moral righteousness. We sort of, wow, we see them. But then he moves into a category that's somewhat shocking. He moves into the category of moral people, and then he moves into the category of Jewish people, his own people, Paul's own people, and he does says something quite shocking. He says that they are also without Righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is moral conformity to the revealed will of God. Righteousness is what we were meant to walk around with, uh, Adam and Eve and all, all his children, all, all Adam and Eve's children. We were to walk around with a, a beautiful, clear conscience, uh, living this remarkable, joyful life because our lives were in conformity to the one who made us, to the we were reflecting rightly the image that we had been made in, and so it's a that's a joyful thing to reflect this beautiful being, God, in real behavior that reflects His His priorities, His values, His character, His holiness. That so so here's the here's the problem, and uh, here's the situation. Uh, 
The problem is we don't feel very uncomfortable about not having righteous, un, about, 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 by not having righteousness. In other words, we walk around on this earth, and we're relatively comfortable with the idea that we don't have what we should have. Like when I, uh, I don't know if you interact with those who don't believe, um, those who are outside of the Christian faith, and then when I try to in, interact with them about the Christian faith, and I try to engage them in, in an evangelistic conversation, uh, I have yet to meet someone who is concerned about Judgment Day. Have you, have you ever met anyone who's concerned about Judgment Day? It's, just think about that. It's really remarkable. We know our Bible teaches this. In fact, the book of Romans chapter 1 says that this knowledge of God is within human beings and that they are aware, Romans 1, that what they're doing uh, actually it violates God's will and it will incur his wrath. But it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't seem to bother them. See what I'm saying? Well, this is our problem, and that is we, we are not aware, fully aware as we should be, or suppressing the knowledge, the moment we are aware of it, about our dire situation. So to lay a foundation for the gospel, Paul presents the law for chapters 1, 2, and 3 to awaken a proper sense of humility in, in people. Uh, whether you're a pagan or you're a religious person or you have, particularly in Paul's situation, a Jewish heritage, to awaken the, the person who is sort of a slumbering and, and believing they can meet God's standard, or they will do just pretty okay on Judgment Day. So this passage, uh, as I read it, I wonder how you felt. How did you feel when I read that passage? What, what happened inside you? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's none who understands. Now, those are uh, in, uh, in uh, like philosophical terms, or those are called... Uh, Absolutes, right? Those are absolute, universal absolutes. I mean, those are those are allness statements, and we we've been raised to you just you just can't say that about everybody. I mean, you know, we certainly have people who are radical sinners, but you can't say no one seeks after God. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He is it's it's like the 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 uh, Paul's Roman epistle is almost like the shape of an hourglass, and he's bringing us down to that point where everything gets, a, gets more than a little tense uh, and more than a little dramatic. He's going broad and wide with all the world, and then he brings it down to the moralist and the, 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 the you know, sort of like a, sort of the, the good Roman uh, senator, right? You know, the person who looks good on the outside, and they seem like they would like doing good things with that, the moralist, and then the Jew, and then, again, a repeating of the whole world is accountable before God. And this is, what, this is what he's doing. Now, people generally have a rather vague view of the future and their view of God. Or they think uh, that God is a benevolent deity. And really what God's job is, in fact, I've, I've, I've met children, not, not here at Trinity, but I've met children 
in previous church experiences where I get to feel, and they've actually said things that led me to believe that what God, according to their little, these little theologians, what God is supposed to do is he's, this is what God does. He just forgives. This is what he does. He's this benevolent deity that just forgives. No connection between, with law and judgment and God's righteous indignation, right? And now we've seen in the last, oh, 100, 150 years in the life in the church, an outright denial of Romans 1, 2, and 3, an outright denial of this biblical anthropology, this view of man. This can't be. Whole denominations denying this, taking a very sentimental view of human nature. And so we have in our time somewhat of a revival of biblical preaching and the biblical gospel, and that's wonderful. But typically, the average person, a very benevolent view of God, let bygones be bygones, and God will just forgive. And of course, we know that our salvation itself depends upon judgment. That's why we have the cross as central to our preaching, because we recognize that the, the way in which we are loved is through God, through Jesus, taking upon himself our judgment. So God holds all accountable. In Romans 1, we find out of, of behavior that is really sort of, in, in our view, perhaps we might, we might understand it or think this way, that's kind of out there. Well, uh, this is behavior of those who are, typically we describe them as pagans or irreligious people. And you have all kinds of categories listed in Romans 1. In Romans 1, there's something quite remarkable going on, and that is that God is giving them over to their desires and their lusts. They're getting what they want. And this is a result of God's judgment. So if God lets someone go, that's not what you want. <laughs> you, you, want you want God to grab them. You want, we, we want mercy. We can't demand mercy. And so in Romans 1, we, we find that God is these who are exchanging the, exchanging the truth of God for lie and now turning to worship the creature, God is letting them go. Romans 1.28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Romans 1 presents that all people have some sufficient knowledge of God, and this knowledge, this knowledge is being suppressed. This knowledge is being turned away from. And now there is this terrifying sense of guilt and judgment that abides upon a person and it will not go away. And God has given them over three times to, first he gives them over to degrading lusts, Romans 1.24. Romans 1.26, he gives them over to a depraved mind. And he gives them over and they are pursuing their lusts and their desires. And we, Paul concludes in Romans 1 that even the threats of God's judgment do not restrain them. So they have been given sufficient knowledge of God and they have turned away from that light. 
That's kind of the core of Romans 1. God gave them knowledge of his person, sufficient knowledge of who he is, and they turned away from that and suppressed this knowledge in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1. Now, the moralist, the the moral person, the person who may have a religion, the person who may have some ethics, the person who may have some, uh, some guiding principles for behavior, right? The person doesn't really jump on every lust and doesn't really follow every whim of their mind. They have some decorum and they have some dignity and they have some character. The moralist, I imagine Paul thinking about them as they're listening to him talk about Romans 1 and imagining them cross their arms and saying, you go, Paul, you get them. That's right. That's right. Those pagans, man, did they ever resist the light and turn away from the truth? You get them, Paul. What was remarkable is now Paul goes after those folks. And he begins to say to them, Well, you who judge others, how well do you practice what you preach? In fact, his argument is simply this. You have done the same thing. No, you didn't sin in the same way. But you did the same thing that the group in Romans 1 did. You have turned away from the light that was given to you. You have turned away from it, and you have, by your life, not been consistent with your own standards, and you have rebelled against the truth that you are aware of. Now, that's shocking news for the the moralist, shocking news for the Jew. And Paul is saying, your own standard by which you judge others reveals that you have sufficient knowledge of God's light and God's truth, but you are inconsistent in it. How do you have a right to judge? So awareness of a standard doesn't help at all. It doesn't help that you point your finger at these terrible pagans and doesn't help the religious person who may even have God's law. Now, when I say God's law, here's what we should know. This is shorthand for the Ten Commandments. Now, in Israel's life, there were other commandments. There were were 613 commandments. Um, There were commandments and laws that related to temple sacrifices. Those are the ceremonial laws. And then there are commandments that relate to life in Israel. How are we going to be a nation? Those are the civil laws. Well, let's put those aside for right now. And we're talking about the Ten Commandments, which are called the moral law. Now, these are reflected in every person. They are shown that the Ten Commandments, the first ten that Moses delivers in Exodus 20, those first ten show up in just about every culture in some way or form or another. Not perfectly, but they're... Their expression is there. This is the knowledge of God that is in every human being. So when we talk about the law, generally we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And so the Jews in particular were very proud of the fact that they were given the law. They had been given the sacred scriptures. And there's something to be said, and Paul does say this in Romans 3, that the the Jews should be acknowledged for the special privilege that God gave them. But that doesn't help them keep God's law. In fact, the law of God must be kept from within, from the heart. The law of God must be kept from a heart 
of flesh, not a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36 describes the heart as a heart of stone that needs to be changed in the new covenant to a heart of flesh. And so in Romans 2, we have another category being brought into account. And this is the category of the moralist or the religious person. Now, let's get back to our subject, the subject of humility. (laughs) As you read through Romans 1, 2, and 3, something's supposed to happen inside you. And it may feel like, I don't know how it how it strikes you, how you experience this, but you should have a sense of desperation. You should have a sense of, well, you know, this hourglass is kind of getting down to me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's kind of nice to talk abstract about sin in the world and the Jews and other people, yeah. But I guess I'm in here too. And as you let Romans 1 and 2 and three, do their work on you, something profound begins inside you. Uh, What you may have prided yourself in, something that you may have have, uh, used to distance yourself from others, it begins to dissolve. What you held as righteous, something righteous about you, something that distinguished you from other people, something that made you, can we say it, better than others. You begin to look at that and you begin to ask questions about it and you begin to wonder, is that really what I should take pride in? Do I have any real distinctive that separates me from other people? Am I too under judgment? Look at Romans 3 for a moment with me. 319. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and what is the purpose? Look at this. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Is your mouth closed? You know, in the, the legal world, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this in a courtroom, uh, whether it's a dramatic portrayal of it or actual live, but there are times when it's hard, even when a person is, hurt, is given the verdict Sometimes there are spontaneous shouting, shouting that goes on in defense. And one time talked to a lawyer who said that one time when the verdict was given that the, def- the defendant stood up and accused the judge and accused the jury and accused them as their lawyer. That even, it's, it's difficult For the mouth to be closed, it's hard for us to not have something to say. In fact, I've taught this to Christian groups, various Christian groups over the years. And I've taught Romans 1, 2, and 3. And I get right here to this point when we're all supposed to stop talking, even me. 
And people keep talking. They keep talking, they keep talking, and they come up, they, they come and they say, with perhaps a very sentimental view of the, of, of the human condition, they say, well, what about, what about all the good things people do? Right. And it's true, this is not teaching utter depravity. This is teaching total depravity, meaning that every aspect of our personality has been inf- impacted by sin. We have the remarkable work of Mac- Michelangelo. We have... Um, uh, we have remarkable architecture. We have beautiful things that unbelievers have made. We have beautiful and good things that unbelievers have done. It's a good thing that someone rescues another person, perhaps even sacrifices their own life for another person. That's been done. In fact, at one level we would say if someone saves a person from drowning, God would acknowledge that's a good thing that's done. It would be evil if you had the the capacity to save someone from drowning and you didn't do it, right? So God would see that as a good thing. Now the question is, where do we fall short of the glory of God? Romans 3, 23. We fall short of the glory of God, not only in our behavior, but in our motives. In the spirit in which we do something. And what you find, actually, is that the longer you are a believer, the more this becomes true to you. The longer you have had time to follow God, to worship God, to obey God, the more you see what Romans 1, 2, and 3 is saying, and you begin to agree with it at the heart level. So it's hard for us to close our mouths and to stop our self-improvement program, to stop our sense of this can't truly be my condition before God's holy law. But what the shut mouth is, is an agreement with what God is saying. And if a person comes to that point when they are agreeing with what God says, brothers and sisters... They're knocking on the door of salvation itself. If that would ever come over a person where they realize God's assessment of them, oh, brothers and sisters, God has been working on their heart. And this is not a depressing thing. This is not just a sad thing that we should sort of over, not, not, not wish for someone. This is really one of the most important aspects of one's conversion. And Jesus said, Uh, of those who are greatly forgiven, there is great love, right? Those who are forgiven much, love much, right? To the extent that we understand the depth of the forgiveness will produce a vibe of love. If you know that you are greatly forgiven, there's something that's going to happen in your personal vibe. You're going to come out of this great state of humility and you're going to be placed in places that you are aware you do not deserve. You're at a party you shouldn't be invited to. You are dressed in Christ's righteousness and you don't deserve it. Now, all of this is the stance of the heart that makes a remarkable difference in how we come across as, as, as Christians. And so now we are at this silent place, Romans 3.20. 
Every mouth is closed. I can't come before you, O God, as a saint. If my life will ever be rebuilt, you must rebuild it. In silence, I ponder how perfect your law is. In silence, I recognize I knew your standard and I did not regard it. I recognize you are right in your assessment of me. In silence, all my forms of righteousness dissolve. In silence, I realize I am in debt and I cannot bring about your mercy. In silence, I'm ready to watch. My eyes are upon you, God. In silence, I'm ready to hear. And now I see something I could not ever have understood or imagined. I see Isaiah's suffering servant walking this earth. He's arrived. He's become enfleshed in a body like mine. Sheer mercy has arrived. He becomes my wrath bearer. He's born under the law, Galatians 4.4. He carries the law, delights in God's law for me. As I am in silence, I also see him in silence as he takes the trials I deserve, as he suffers what I deserve. He is becoming silent. It's as if he's guilty, but he's not. He becomes representatively guilty. He represents his people. He is silent. He's not guilty of any of this, but he takes it and he begins to act as though he is guilty. Isaiah 53 says that he opened not his mouth. We open not our mouths because we are guilty. He did not open up his mouth because he was willing to become guilty and to be treated as if he were guilty. And we learn that he is the wrath bearer on that cross. He is rejected of men. He is abandoned on that cross. He is the one who is forsaken. All the language of wrath bearing is ascribed to Jesus. And then the beautiful words on the cross. The final words of triumph, it is finished. Do you see, when he cried, he understood the law's judgment against you. And he knew what needed to be presented to the law. The law was saying to us sinners, where is my death? And we, by sheer grace, can say, I have it through Jesus. And we can also say, I have the righteousness that the law requires through the obedience of Jesus, the one who lived this perfect life for me. Now, what kind of vibe would, would begin to emanate from us who, who get this? If we get it, what kind of humility would 
be communicated as we interact with people, when we receive criticism, when we have trouble, when we have a difficulty, when, we, uh, when life's not going the way we would like it to go, what, can, what kind of vibe, what kind of feel, what kind of intangible but also tangible something would com- we communicate? We have been given the peace of God. We're at peace with God through being justified through Christ. Uh, enjoy this. Relax in this. Uh, pick up God's vibe toward you about this. He wanted you. He was willing to, to come after you. He's the, the father in the prodigal son story. He's the father who, who opens his arm looking, arms looking for you. He, he wants you. He pursues you, waits for you, gives you this righteousness. Isn't it? Isn't it remarkable? Let's, let's, let's think on this. Let's enjoy this. Let's let this permeate more deeply into our character. And, and as we interact with people, they, even the vibe they give us doesn't define us. Even the, the, the static they give us doesn't really shake us. And now we begin to enjoy the Romans 8 type stuff where he who is for us, how will he not? also give us all things so let's enjoy this and it doesn't stop here in the sermon it continues on in the lord's supper uh, to to sense god's god's heart for us yes we are accountable before god and his law and and now there's a way to be justified apart from the law through christ and it's great let's pray Father, we thank you for Jesus who was silent before those who killed him. Father, those are remarkable words, but we thank you for Jesus who came and understood more deeply and more thoroughly what the law required of sinners, and he was willing to become that on on the cross and so, Lord, you, you were willing to give. You are a giver. You are a lover. You are kind. You are, you are taking us out of the silence of condemnation, and you're giving us words of joy. You're giving us words of, of affirmation because Jesus has pleased you so well. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And you have... You have enfolded us into him. Oh, thank you, Father. And so, Lord, we, we, we ask, oh God, you'd give us a greater sense of what it looks like that we might live and communicate. This is, this is real to us. And then we ask these things in the name of the one who came, Jesus. Amen. Amen. What a great, what a great